we bring emotion to work with us. You know, we can't we can't we can't leave emotion at the front at the front door. I think from an HF perspective, if you're angry, you're you're about 30 times more likely to make a mistake. Hello and welcome. I'm Jalen Simsek for today's podcast. I'll be joined by host of the Industry series, Dr. Yvonne Shaw. Great to be with you, Yvonne. Thank you, Jalen. It's great to be doing this podcast with you. This is a bit of a different podcast because both our medical protection and dental protection listeners can catch it on both channels. The reason we can do this is because we're speaking with a unique but hopefully familiar guest for our members. Yvonne, would you like to introduce our guest and podcast for today? Yeah, certainly happy to, Jalen. So as our listeners know, we've been having a lot of conversations about diagnostic error and delays. And today we're going to really hone into what we can all do to improve diagnostic safety. Now, today's guest is none other than Professor Peter Brennan, who's been a consultant oral and maxillofacial surgeon based at Portsmouth Hospital's NH Trust since 2002. Now, Peter traverses both of our medical and dental worlds um, with clinical interests in head and neck malignancy, reconstructive free flap surgery, and neck lumps. He's also a research supervisor and examiner for higher research degrees and has published over 700 papers to date, and 80 of those are on human factors and patient safety. Um, Peter's research has also been awarded both national and international research prizes, and he's lectured extensively in the UK and abroad. So, Peter, welcome. And we'd just like to start off with a broad question of what are human factors in healthcare? Well, thank you both for the for the invitation. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question, isn't it, really? And I think for me, the uh, the clues really in the title, human factors. Uh, so as humans, it's about optimizing our performance um, through through an understanding of of how we work together, our behavior, uh, our thinking processes, our interactions. Um, and interactions not only with ourselves, but, but also the environment um, and equipment. And, and that's a separate area of ergonomics. So, Peter, was it a specific incident that sparked your interest in human factors and the impact on the delivery of healthcare? Yes, yes, I think it was one. I think um, probably about 13 or so years ago now, I had, a, I had an airline pilot who came into theatre very interested in surgery. And, um, you know, basically just opened my eyes to something called crew resource management, CRM, uh, which is which is how um, how team members interact and work together, uh, the communication, some of the hierarchy things and just uh, just things that I hadn't hadn't really thought about. And we were operating for four or five hours without taking a break. That's what I used to do. And he was, well, hang on. Have you have you thought about taking a break? You're surely getting a bit tired. So sure enough, yes, we stopped. We took a break. I was a bit skeptical, if I'm honest. Um, we walked away for 10, 15 minutes, came back, and um, the morale and the performance of the team was so much enhanced. Um, we actually caught that time up, and I guess the rest is history, really. It's really interesting. Thank you. And uh, how do human factors relate to diagnostic error, Peter? Well, diagnosis sort of massive great topic, isn't it, really? And I guess. I guess diagnosis can be a very simple process, so a spot diagnosis of a uh, of a lump or a skin lesion or uh, a decayed tooth, for example, or it can be very very complex. But even even simple decision making can be influenced by uh, all sorts of things. You know, distraction. Some someone coming into a room, for example, when you're reading a CT scan or you're 
or you're interpreting results. Multitasking, we do that. We do that all the time, don't we? We're 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 typing an email whilst we're whilst we're looking at something else. Uh, confirmation bias. I think we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But looking for clues that actually confirm what we're thinking, ra- rather than looking at the broader at the broader picture. And sometimes actually finding something that we that we think is important, and then we and then we hone into uh, onto that, and maybe forget that there there may be other other factors or processes involved as well. So so a complex a simple question, but but a complex answer, I guess. And then finally, you know how how we're feeling emotionally, whether we're tired, whether we're hungry, whether we're working under pressure, whether we've had an extra patient added on to our to our busy clinic or what have you, and the pressure's on. All of those can affect can affect diagnosis. Absolutely. And you've mentioned various things such as distraction, unconscious bias, being tired. Um, So how do human factors contribute when an error is made? How does that happen? Yeah, well, most most error, in fact, when you when you dissect it out and we've we've looked at errors uh, across healthcare and published uh, a lot on that as well. Most error is multifactorial. So there's not there's not one um, single thing that caught that causes the error. Yes, yes, you as the practicing clinician may be responsible for, for example, taking out the wrong tooth or, or you know, missing something on diagnostic. But actually lead, leading up to that, there's a whole um, list of other things that, that actually contribute to, the, to that error. So most error starts in an organization, um, so-called latent failure, um, something that you might not have thought about. So for example, we mentioned that it's um, it's running late. It's it's having an extra patient added onto your operating list. Uh, it's doing a ward round with it, with extra patients that are added on, which you, which you've missed, for example. It's all those organisational type type issues, and then you've got the so-called preconditions to unsafe acts, and they're, they're some of the things I mentioned just a while ago about the tiredness, um, fatigue, um, hunger, uh, thirst, team dynamics, hierarchy, and so forth. And then finally, thing, things like unsafe supervision, and that would include not only unsafe with, with supervising more junior members of the team, but things like failure to engage with a checklist. So all of us use checklists, um, but do we engage with them as if our own life or limb or tooth depends on it? And the answer is probably not. Uh, a lot of people that I've seen, and in fact, me, me as well, until I started understanding human factors, it was it was a tick box exercise. It was it was something that we had to do before we got to the operation. If you change culture and you you engage with that checklist as if your own life or limb or a member of your family's actually depends on it, then um, it's much much safer. Uh, and then finally, the unsafe act itself. So all of those things coming together, uh, then the unsafe act itself happens, and that's what leads to to an error. Thanks, Peter. I think you mentioned a lot of kind of like individual factors, but also environmental factors. And I'm sure you'll agree in the last few years, our medical and dental colleagues have been probably facing an unprecedented number of challenges that are impacting delivery of healthcare, such as working during the COVID pandemic, managing the backlogs that that pandemic's now generated, patient dissatisfaction. We're certainly seeing a lot more complaints coming through from members and then coupled with that, we've got new ways of working. So we've got remote working. And then more recently, we've got strike action, which is obviously going to impact upon resource. So a massive number of pressures on our colleagues over quite a prolonged period of time now. So I suppose from a human factors perspective, what are your thoughts on the current environment and the risks? Um, and I suppose thinking you know, further down the line, what steps can clinicians take to try and offset some of that risk? 
when they're perhaps coming under more and more pressure to work longer hours and cover these absent roles? Yeah, well, it, it's been it's been an unprecedented uh, three or four years, hasn't it? Really, and um, in the in the initial stages, I think you know lo- loads of public support. There were there was all the clapping and things, and of course now coming coming out of the pandemic, seven million patients uh, I think on waiting list for uh, for operations. The workforce has been has been has been through it, all the uncertainties of the of the virus, all the worries, all the pressures, and so forth. So you know we live we live in unprecedented times, and and for me, I think human factors even more important than ever, but particularly with with many of us having um, having fatigue, and you know burnout again is another issue. So I think I think there's a difference. I think we should we should emphasise the uh, the difference between tiredness. Uh, and fatigue. Uh, many of us uh, are feeling fatigued. Tiredness is a physiological state, so it's a um, little bit like hunger. If you're if you're hungry, you have something to eat, and your hunger goes away. If you're thirsty, you have something to drink. Thirst goes away. If you sleep, then your tiredness goes away. So it's a physiological state. Fatigue is much much more complicated. And yes, you can have an acute fatigue. Uh, so you so you run a marathon, for example, or you're up all night or a couple of nights and things. But but o- over a period of days or weeks, fatigue is far far more complicated, and that's where many um, healthcare staff are at the moment. And actually recognizing it in ourselves, rec- recognizing some of those symptoms, so irritability, uh, tiredness, you know, can't be bothered to do to do the work, um, irritability with colleagues, anger, those sorts of things, and they're they're the cognitive and the kind of the emotional side of things, and then you've got other factors as well. So, you know, particularly in surgery, not operating for long periods of time, and you're then suddenly expected to come in and do do a complex operation. So in aviation, and I don't think we should ever compare aviation to healthcare, they're completely different. But in aviation, there's something called currency, which is you you have to do a certain number of landings per month and what have you. In surgery or in medicine, we haven't done something for six or nine months, and yet it's okay to pick to pick up a knife and go straight for it straight away. So there, there is there's a potential lack of currency. Changes in circadian rhythms, you know, with with shift patterns and having to do a set of nights and then maybe a day or two off and then coming back into it. Lack of sleep, all of these things. So it's a really complex uh, situation at the moment, and of course government pressures, pressures from the public, pressures in the um, in the national press um, and on news about about waiting lists and patients complaining, Yvonne, as you as you've already mentioned. So pressure's really on, and it's and it's recognising that and actually mitig- sort of mitigating against against the potential issues, which opens up a whole new area of threat and error management in in itself. Perhaps um, perhaps something for another another podcast. Yeah. And do hierarchies play a role in stopping someone from speaking up, either before, during, or after? A diagnostic error is about to be made, um, especially that juniors might be struggling against speaking up against seniors or seniors potentially not speaking up for fear of being seen as incompetent. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting question. I think first and foremost, uh, there has to be a hierarchy. Um, There has to be an overall leader of the team, a consultant, a senior nurse, a matron, um, whoever. There um, There has to be that person that everyone looks to. If there isn't any hierarchy, it's a so-called laissez-faire. So no one, no one quite knows what on earth is going on. But for me, I think there should be a very gentle uh, hierarchy such that 
any member of the team, and that can be both intra-professional, so uh, colleagues in the same specialty, and inter-professional, so nurses, other, um, other, other healthcare staff can actively challenge and without fear of retribution as well. So, that, so that's really, really important. And, you know, if you're, if you're an unapproachable consultant and you instill fear into your trainees, for example, you know, they're, they're going to feel uncomfortable and they, and they might not feel able to speak up and challenge if there's, if there's a patient safety related issue. So low ingredients such that, such that anyone can speak up um, is really important. And it actually extends much, much deeper than that. It's, it's about the culture of the NHS, isn't it? It's about, you know, having, having that just culture. So if something goes wrong, if there is an error, it's not who is to blame. It's why did this happen? And what, um, and what can we do? What measures can we put? What systems can we adopt to prevent it or to reduce it from happening in future? I wonder if, is it just hierarchy? But I just wonder if there's maybe cultural and generational differences that also might impact yeah. an individual's willingness to speak up. Um, and I suppose the question is, how, how can those differences be addressed? And what can we do on a personal level to try and change embedded behaviours? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. And, and um, I'm, I'm just amazed, actually, at the differences of uh, people, people coming in to meet us with, uh, with medical students, for example, coming into theatre. I always introduce myself as Peter Brennan. I don't say I'm a professor or whatever. Um, and they can call me whatever they feel comfortable with. And some medical students will instantly say, oh, thank you, Peter. Thanks very much. And that's absolutely fine. And some will, uh, will respect and will say Professor Brennan. And I think, um, I think both are respecting, but it's, you know, they give that added, added level of respect. I honestly don't mind as long as, as, long as the, the individual or individuals um, just, feel, just feel comfortable. Um, so yes, there is, there is cert certainly cultural differences, but as the leader of the team, um, what, what I think we need to be doing is to, is to ensure that uh, whoever it is in that operating theatre or that clinic or that interventional radiology suite or your dental practice or wherever it is, is just, is just happy to speak up if they just feel something doesn't seem quite right. And it's, and it's almost like a gut feeling, isn't it, when, when um, something just doesn't, doesn't appear to be right. And so you just say, um, hang on a sec, please, can we stop? Um, I'm not quite happy about this. And it's without that fear of retribution. Thank you. And we often tend to go from task to task without actually giving any consideration to the emotional side of things, uh, yep. which you mentioned. So emotional element tends to often be overlooked. What emotional support systems could individuals lean into? Are there any, any such as human factors, champions at hospitals or talking to colleagues? What would you suggest? Yeah. Well, emotion, emotion is a big one, isn't it? And of course, we bring emotion to work with us. You know, we can't, we can't, we can't leave emotion at the front, at the front door. I think from an HF perspective, if you're angry, you're, you're about 30 times more likely to make a mistake. Uh, that's the first thing. So um, huge numbers. Uh, and also the, the effect of anger, for example, on uh, team workers. So you're, so you're much, much more likely to shout out at others. And if you do that, 80% um, of colleagues that do that subsequently regret their actions. And that's something called limbic hijacking. So it's, it's our primitive limbic system uh, overtakes our, our higher brain functions, which evolutionarily is much more, much more recent. It's, um, I think it's 500 million years old is the limbic system compared to 100,000 for a higher function. So it's very, very quick to, um, to overtake and to hijack. So my advice is actually to stop first before, before shouting. 
but yeah, having having colleagues around, um, chatting with colleagues, having a network around you, both at work and at home, uh, with family, with friends. Certainly, in some in some trusts, there will there will be well being lounges, for example. There there be places where one can go, one can get advice. I think we're a long way behind other so-called high reliability organisations or HROs. And one that comes to mind is National Air Traffic Services, you know, a a hugely reliable organization. They have a team of human factors experts that that are there looking out for the the air traffic controllers, telling them when to stop, um, telling them to take a break and so forth. Sadly, in healthcare, we we haven't got that at the moment. So, So we're having to rely a lot on each other to, you know, looking out for each other, taking those regular breaks and empowering the team. And I can't stress that enough either, you know, empowering your team when you get to say three hours or three and a half hours, if it's safe to do so, taking that break and getting someone to call, to call that time out and say, right, come on, come on, let's, let's just take a break. Because if you're stressed and you're anxious, and we mentioned that earlier, you know, um, risk, risk of error goes up and of course, fatigue and all the, all the other things come into play. So I see human factors a little bit like a balloon, you know, balloon filled up with water. You press on one side and another side expands. You know, you can't take these things in isolation. They they all kind of act interchangeably. Thanks, Peter. Um, We've talked, obviously, there's a number of factors that impact our approach towards decision making. And you did mention kind of confirmation bias earlier on. Certainly coming from a clinical background, you know, I'm very much aware of that risk that, you know, you look at an x-ray and you've already got a diagnosis in your mind so it kind of almost gives you tunnel vision when you're looking at that x-ray yeah um, i suspect you know we have similar across medicine um you know getting results back where we're actually looking to find evidence that supports a diagnosis rather than taking that objective view so are there any ways that we can look at that might reduce that risk of that bias in the way that we're approaching our diagnosis yeah that's a good one and i mean having, having that open mind um, stopping to think before before actually making that making that final decision. Just thinking, you know, is there something else? Could this be something else? Having having that open approach, um, having having team members around you, and I mentioned about empowerment earlier, but having team members looking out as well, because a lot of them have got huge amounts of skills. You know, dental nurses working working with dental surgeons, huge amount of experience and expertise. And if you empower them uh, and you say, look, please look, please look out for me, please, you no. Know, um, I want your advice on this. Not only is it good for team working, it's fantastic for patient safety and um, and reduces the likelihood of error. Time constraints, I think we mentioned and touched upon those. Making sure you take um, time off to rehydrate and things. So if you if you lose a kilogram in body weight through loss of water, you know perspiration in the summer, your analysis and decision making, how you think and process information, falls by about twenty percent. That happens really, really slowly, and you don't even know it's happened. So, you know, taking the regular breaks, um, stopping, eating and drinking, morale is good. Tunnel vision, certainly. I mean, you mentioned that, and there's lots and lots of, lots of examples of tunnel vision. Uh, and one of them actually is the clock. So, so you're concentrating, doing, doing a complex task. Um, suddenly, two or three hours has gone past, and you don't realize that length of time has gone past because, because you're tunnel visioned on the, on the task in hand. So again, it comes back to team working, doesn't it? And having others around you looking out and stopping or, or asking if they're not 100% sure or if, or if there's an issue with safety. And much better to stop if you can, just to stop, to step back, to down tools, 
rather than to go ahead and then and then take out um, a wrong tooth, which has happened time and again. You know, it's it's um, simple things. I mean, human factors for me is very very uh, complex. It's an, uh, an immensely complex subject, but actually at the heart of it is common sense application. And I think certainly seeing a lot more kind of drive towards use of artificial intelligence and how that might kind of be used alongside healthcare. Um, and I suppose the question is, is artificial intelligence going to help perhaps address some of those human factor issues? Alternatively, is it going to introduce new risk factors that we need to consider? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. I think artificial intelligence is coming. It's here, it's here already, isn't it? I think I think it's great for certain things, for binary type things. So so yes and no, you know, making a diagnosis. Uh, I mean, it's being used in in all sorts of areas, mammography, for example, and things with varying results. So, so I think at the moment, I think it's fantastic as an adjunct to to kind of help us to confirm what we're thinking ra- rather than uh, acting on its own. But certainly, I see I see the future very very bright with AI and you know patient safety um, issues melting away. One would hope. Yeah, it's exciting times. Um, but I don't think, or at least I hope, it's not. It's not going to replace the judgment that that a clinician has and the experience. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you, Peter. That's quite interesting. And given that um, it, it's not looking like it will replace individual judgment anytime soon, um, just for our listeners, what can each individual currently do to reduce error, especially when working within a multidisciplinary team, where it can be that each person has their own obligations, their own our responsibilities. How do you uh, manage to reduce error in that situation? Yeah. So a lot of us work these days in MDTs, don't we? And you know, for me, that it's really important. Everyone is valued equally, irrespective of who you are. So, so the most senior consultant to uh, a medical or dental student, I value everyone equally, and that's all about empowerment. And we mentioned that, and we mentioned that earlier. You know, giving giving people times and tasks to do to do things. To show to show that value, so uh, so one person's doing one thing, someone's doing something else, and even even if it's even if it's an online, say an online MDT, and um, a lot of those uh, are going that way at the moment, aren't they? Setting setting time limits and things, so you know, doing an MDT meeting for four hours, and I know colleagues that do that online, and you can see the boredom, the fatigue creeping in. They start multitasking, they start picking up their phones and texting and so forth, taking a break of just you know, two or three minutes every hour. In fact, we've published on that and um, it's just obvious, isn't it? But it's it's something, you know, some, sometimes we forget to do that. You know, a short little break, standing up, stretch the legs, a swig of coffee uh, and carrying on again. That can make a huge, huge difference. Avoid multitasking. So if you're, if you're in an MDT and you're doing things, multitasking is a, uh, is a big no-no. People continue to multitask. We've had drug administration errors. Many years ago, I was involved in an investigation with a nurse doing a drug round at a different hospital who was actually texting and gave penicillin to a penicillin allergic patient. So, so we, should, we shouldn't be multitasking. But working together as a team, empowerment, valuing everyone else, and you know, ensure, ensuring all those things we talked about earlier, that we, that we take the breaks and things and we look out for each other. I think that would be my advice. There's lots of uh, points in there that listeners can take away, which is actually quite helpful um, in terms of reducing error. What about optimizing performance to reduce error? Is there any steps that our listeners could take? Yeah, so for, so for me, it's very, very simple. You know, um, you know when you get on an aeroplane and they say, 
put your own mask on before before helping others. So if you're at 30,000 feet and you and you have a sudden cabin depressurization, you have about 15 seconds before before you're you're going to lose consciousness. So if you're trying to help someone else, you're going to die and they're going to die as well if you don't if you don't get the mask on. And and that for me is all is all about optimizing ourselves, looking after ourselves and then we go and look after our patients. So so I would just ask ask listeners do you go to work in the morning um, not having had breakfast, for example? Is that is that something you do? Now that might be something that you've done for years, but but if you do that, you're not optimized. You're you're effectively in a fasting state. You're burning fat. You're generating ketones. Your brain doesn't like that. And there's loads of published evidence that shows that people that don't eat breakfast don't perform as well as those who do. Missing lunch, for example, you know we're missing lunch because because the clinic's overbooked, and so we just continue on working. You know. You, w- you wouldn't drive for six or seven hours nonstop, or at least I hope you wouldn't. You, you would stop every three or four hours, get out of the car, take a break. And yes, it seems okay to be able to, be able to do that in healthcare. Um, but, um, you know, just eating and drinking regularly, you know, thinking about our emotional status. If we're running late, perversely, the thing to do is actually to stop, recharge, walk away for a few minutes, catch the, um, and then you catch the time up, in fact, because, because your performance has then come back up again. So there's something called halt, hungry, angry, late, or tired, if you're any of those things, and if it's safe to do so, stepping back, getting out of that situation. Even just for a few minutes, it can make a massive, massive difference to performance. Thank you so much, Peter. And that's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, just to say thank you, Peter. It's been really interesting. And thank you for spending time with us. No, thank you so much. And with that, we'll reach the end of today's podcast. If you would like a certificate for listening or just want more information about our guest and the conversation today, please take a look in the podcast description. I've been your host, Jalen Simsek. Thank you for listening. <laughs>